It is Wednesday, July 19th, 2023, and welcome to episode 241 of Fault Lines as we continue our Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow, and today I am speaking with Dr. Hani Farid. Hani is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley with a joint appointment in electrical engineering and computer sciences and the School of Information. He is also a member of the Berkeley Institute for Data Science, the Center for Innovation in Vision and Optics, the Development Engineering and Vision Science Program, and is a senior faculty advisor for the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. His research focuses on digital forensics, forensic science, misinformation, image analysis, and human perception. Hani, welcome to Fault Lines. It's good to be here. Okay, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna focus in on misinformation and disinformation as generated by artificial intelligence uh, for the next few minutes. Hani, tell us tell us um, just broadly speaking, what what are we talking about here in terms of misinformation and disinformation? Yeah, so there's a there's a bunch of stuff happening. So let me let me start chipping off at them. So the first one is we now have the ability to create images of anything that your your imagination can conjure. Go over to a mid-journey, a stable diffusion, an open AI's dolly, type in what you want, just whatever you want. I want an image of Donald Trump and Dr. Fauci embracing. And it will, a few seconds later, generate an image for you that is highly, highly realistic. So I can create visual disinformation of events that happened, uh, events that never happened. And that is essentially a solved problem in getting better and better. And of course, I, not only can I create it, but I can now put it on Twitter and Facebook and I can distribute it to the world instantaneously. I also have the ability to now go to uh, various web services for a few bucks a month and train AI systems to clone somebody's voice, say uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Fauci, uh, Trump, um, Elon Tom Musk, Cruise. Tom Cruise, whomever, from about two minutes of audio. So I don't have to create this massive data set, two minutes of audio. I can clone your voice. And again, I then just type and it will hand me an audio back um, of that person saying whatever I want. So if I want a hot mic of Joe Biden saying something offensive, I can create that. And again, I can distribute to the world. On the video side, um, you can now publicly available, freely available code can uh, insert one person's likeness, like your face on a video of me, for example. And again, it used to be that you needed hundreds of thousands of images of you, but now you need one image and exactly one image. And I now create a video of you doing whatever I want. Um, obviously on the tech side, we know that ChatGPT will generate bullshit all day long if you ask it to. Um, and so now you're looking at a landscape where is anything fundamentally different? Yes and no. I'm sure I've been able to manipulate video, audio, and images and create fake text, but I've now can do that with an incredible ease and it has fully democratized access to it. And when you think about that threat factor, it's not fundamentally I can create fake information. It's that anybody can do it and there's a distribution and a consumption mechanism that is already in place. I want, I want to ask you about that um, kind of uh, democratization of these yeah. of this misinformation in a second. But first, has something happened? I mean, this this is all fairly new, right? Chat GPT is a few months old, really. Yeah. Um, uh, these other things are, have just started appearing. What happened with the technology that yeah. has allowed this to just seemingly explode before our eyes? Yeah. 
Um, well, you know, I would say this stuff has been in the ether for about five years. I mean, the term deep fakes has been kicking around for a while now. So I think a number of things have happened. So first of all, we have more and more computing power. GPUs are getting faster and better and more affordable. So the computing power to create this stuff is out there, number one. Number two is the data sets. And really, make no mistake about it, most of what we are talking about, a big chunk of it is a data revolution, not just an AI revolution. No. So we have massive data sets that are now readily available. Absolutely, the algorithms, the, the transformers and the deep neural networks and the autoencoders and the underlying algorithmic advances have been accelerating at a pace that is un, unheard of in, in recent history. And then, of course, there's a lot of money being injected right? with the crash of cryptocurrency. Where did all the crypto bros go? They're all AI bros now. <laughs> and so there's a lot of bodies at, at stake. And of course, the venture capitalists are also investing huge billions of dollars into these efforts. So now you have unlimited computing power, unlimited data, phenomenal algorithmic advances, lots of bodies and lots of money. And I think that's what's causing this very rapid rise in this technology that we've seen over the last few years. All right, you, you talked about democratization of, of the ability to manipulate uh, images and words and, and all of yeah. this stuff. What, is, what does that mean for the, for the average person? Am I, as a, as a fairly Luddite technology person, able to put an app on my phone that'll yeah. let me create this stuff totally on my own? Or am I still going to be reliant on some server at a giant big data company somewhere that's really yeah. generating all of this? Or can it, can it be something that I completely control? Yeah. So uh, there are, like I have on my laptop that I'm sitting right here, I have a, a version of Stable Diffusion running, which will do image synthesis. And I can just launch it like a normal application, type, and it'll generate an image. It's not quite on the phones yet because there is still some computing power. You still need a pretty good GPU to make this reasonably efficient, but it, it, it's coming to the phone. What do we know about technology? This is one thing we know. It gets faster, it gets better, it gets cheaper, and it gets more ubiquitous. And this, everything we are seeing will follow that trend. But let me, let me phrase the answer to your question this way is, you maybe five years ago, you needed some technical expertise to download a GitHub repo and compile and get it working. Now for audio synthesis, image synthesis, uh, text synthesis, just go to a web serv service and just type. Video is still, you need a little bit of effort, um, but that's coming. It, it'll be in an app at some point. I don't know when, but it'll be there. So if, if we now have, uh, have the ability to take a little snippet of someone's voice and then transform that into words they didn't say, yeah. there's, there seems to me to be a huge legal problem here for whoever is doing that. You're going to be violating that person's intellectual property, perhaps, or yeah. their, you know, their personal dignity. There's like, Good. what are the, and, I, and we don't want to get too legalistic here, but yeah. what are the, what are the kind of societal barriers, Good. legal barriers, if you will, on this kind of behavior? Good. So for, for full disclosure, I'm not a legal scholar. Uh, I'm a technologist, but we are already seeing the lawsuits. So um, the image synthesis folks are being sued by the various um, the Gettys of the world, for example, for violating copyrights because they have scraped up all this data, not necessarily following the rules. Um, voice cloning is really interesting. Like if I go to one of the web services we use to voice clone, there's a little box that I click that says, I have permission to use this person's voice. I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that 99.9% .9 of people do yeah. not have permission to do that. Um, and so the question is, where is the liability? Is it on the user? Well, I asked them to click a box to tell me if they have a permission or is it on the service or is it on both? 
And there's actually problem both on the input and the output. So for example, the voice training, the audio training, the video training, we're trained on billions of pieces of data. Where did it come from? Did you have rights to it? Is that fair use? Right. So a lot of this stuff is going to get adjudicated over the next few years. And I think it's going to be very complicated and it's very regional because the rules here in the U.S. around fair use are very different than they are, for example, in the U.K. or in Europe. So I think it's going to be an interesting legal landscape. Um, you've already started to see lawsuits from performers. Uh, Sarah Silverman, for example, is suing OpenAI for stealing her likeness and her intellectual property. And so I think all of this stuff is going to start to get sorted out. But here's the good news is that we've sort of been here before. You remember the early days of the Internet where everybody's ripping off movies and music and books? And the courts figured it out. They figured out the copyright infringement that we got iTunes and now we have Spotify and Netflix. And so we, we sort of worked through that process. And I think we're going to have to work through this process, but it's going to take a few years. All right. We, we've, um, this is a, I'm going to ask about a topic that, that keeps coming up as we talk about different aspects of, mm-hmm. of AI. What do you think? And again, don't want to get too legalistic here, but what do you think the prospects are for some sort of international agreement mm. like between the U, even just between the U.S. Yeah. and the EU to harmonize the way uh, AI yeah. issues are treated? Is that plausible? Is it worth the effort? Is it or should we look for other ways to find solutions? First of all, technology doesn't know any borders. So it's a little silly and naive of us to say, well, we're going to regulate this within the U.S. where we are five percent of the world's population. I would love to see the five eyes, uh, the U.S., the U.K., the Australians, New Zealand and the Canadians band together. We're relatively s- similar socioeconomically and culturally. I think we could agree on a scaffolding. I don't know that that would necessarily export to Africa, Asia and other parts of the world, but at least it would be a beginning. Um, is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? I don't know. I mean, the, look, we can't even get our own uh, house in order here in the U.S., let alone now trying to agree. Um, I do think that in terms of regulation, the Europeans are ahead of us and they have continually been ahead of us. They had the GDPR for privacy, the DSA and the DMA came out recently on online security and monopolization, and they have an AI bill that is already being worked on. So I, I think we should be leading, not only are these companies here in the US, but we should take a leadership role in this. This is that most of this technology is coming out of the US. All right, I wanna, add, I, wanna, I wanna challenge you a little bit on the Europeans are leading question. I see that they're, they're doing more regulation. It does seem to be more coherent and a little more top down than what we're doing. On the other hand, I can't name a single European social media platform that wasn't invented here in the United States. We do seem to be the innovators here. Is there is there something that we would risk losing if yeah. we were to impose too much of a, a restrictive environment on this technology? I think it's a fair point. And, and when I said they were leading, I didn't I meant they're leading on yeah. the online privacy and safety issues. But right. it's a fair question. Here's here's how I think about it is. Change the topic for a minute. And let's say we were talking about climate change and we were talking about pollution. And I said, I think the U.S. should lead on regulating companies to make sure they don't pollute the air and the water. And you could come back to me and say, well, do we really want to be at a disadvantage if we're going to regulate? And I think most people would say, no, we should be careful not to pollute the world. Right. And I think the same is true of the information ecosystem. So the answer to your question is regulation can be good. And regulation can be bad. So, for example, when we started regulating to put safety features in the automobiles, 
What did the car manufacturer say? This will destroy American manufacturing. We will be anti-competitive with our foreign counterparts. They were wrong. The seatbelt, the airbags, the ABS brakes, all of that stuff made our cars better. And it was a, it was a selling point. Safety is not at odds with innovation. Safety is good. And so I think smart regulation, thoughtful regulation, proportional regulation, not only is good for us, the public, society, and democracy, it's actually good for the companies. They should embrace it. And we have evidence of that, um, that we have done this in the past. All right, let me ask you about uh, about China, since we're, we're kind of doing global sure. stuff here. China has already imposed all kinds of uh, restrictions, very severe restrictions on what companies can do, what kind of data they can access, who controls the decision making here is so as and their system very, very different from ours, sure. uh, which, of course, there's a whole bunch of consequences of that. But let's just kind of take this one example. Does does that mean we should worry more about competition from China or maybe we don't have to worry about it as much because they're kind of handicapping themselves with the way that they're that the, the Chinese Communist Party is imposing yeah. this system on a billion and a half people? I think what I've been seeing is a lot of companies use the China boogeyman as an excuse not to be more careful in how they're developing and deploying technology. If you ask me who am I most worried about in terms of competition, it's not China. Um, I think there are real legitimate national security issues we should worry about with respect to China. But I don't even know what it means to lose. Like, I don't even know what it means in competition. Most of the technology we are talking about, the academic research, the private sector, is in the U.S. Um, and so I think that's a little bit of a red herring. And it's and I, again, I'm not saying we should create overly restrictive and prohibitive regulation that stifles innovation. Absolutely not. But I think using that as an excuse not to be more careful on how technology can be weaponized against individual societies and democracies is a bit of a red herring. All right, let's go. Let's go from to, uh, global to local. So, in the in the, I, I'm I'm a Chicago native, although I'm in D.C. now. But in the Chicago mayoral race of a few months ago, there was actually a, a deep fake video that was mm -hmm. used of one of the candidates talking about a very sensitive, you know, kind of social local police issue in a certain way, and it may have led to that candidate losing. Yeah. What do you what are your thoughts about how all of this this AI generated yeah. misinformation, what's it going to do to our politics? What's it? Yeah. What is it already doing to our politics? Well, I think what's important to understand is that deep fakes are going to be thrown on top of an existing highly polarized, highly partisan time in our history. And I think it's important to understand that, that we are already yeah. ripping ourselves apart before deep fakes showed up on the scene. And so now when somebody creates a deep fake of Biden or Harris or Trump or Pence or who or DeSantis, whoever it is, it gets traction pretty easily because we're already there. And I think we're going to see two things happen in the coming years. One is people are going to create those types of deep fakes. In fact, they've already started to create them. I see them on a fairly regular basis, fake videos uh, and audios of Trump and of Biden. And they're going to start to get some traction. How much will they impact the election? Will they swing an election? We don't know. But here's the other thing you're going to see, which is you're going to see a candidate get caught on a hot mic and they're going to be able to deny that. So think back to 2015 when Trump got caught on the Access Hollywood tape, tape saying some pretty bad things about women. He apologized because yeah. there was nowhere to go from there. If that happened today, there's no apology. It's fake. It's a deep fake. And so that ability to deny reality, video evidence, audio evidence, image evidence is really worrisome. 
Now, is it possible uh, as uh, you know, it's always an arms race, right? You would, you develop the offensive capability. Yeah. There's a consequent defensive capability that's sure. being developed at the same time. Are we able to keep up with these deep fake images, videos, words yeah. in a way that we could in real time say, actually, that's not what you think it is. Yeah. We have very strong evidence. This is, this is a fraud and, and don't be fooled. Good. I'm glad you asked that question. There's, there's sort of two pillars of defense pillars. Um, what we call active techniques and passive techniques. So the passive techniques are sort of my bread and butter here at UC Berkeley, where we ingest an image or an audio or video and we run a battery of tests and it can take anywhere from minutes to hours to days. And, you know, we're pretty good at this. Give us enough time for evidence in a court of law, uh, for a national security case where you've got a couple of days to try to make a decision. We're, we're pretty good at this. Um, Ask us to do that, to analyze a billion uploads to social media every day. No, we can't. We can't do that. So the passive techniques are good at, the, at, the, at, a, at a certain pace and scale. The active techniques, what they do is they say, when you as the creator either record something with this device that I'm holding in my hand and I now realize we're on radio, so it's a phone, <laughs> um, or... You are the synthesis engine creating an image, an audio or a video. You are going to watermark and fingerprint that piece of content and then for downstream detection. Yeah. So, for example, uh, Adobe has something called the Content Authenticity Initiative that implements this open source uh, specification mm. called mm -hmm. the C2PA, Coalition for Content Problems and Authentication. I know that's a mouthful. Um, and it allows both the device when you record something and the synthesis engine to both watermark and fingerprint for instantaneous, and you said that just exactly right, Lester, instantaneous detection on uploads. Now, let me make one last point here is that these are necessary technologies, but they're not sufficient. Because if Adobe and everybody involved in this effort goes to all this work to create this technology, but then Twitter says, we're going to ignore that signal, doesn't matter, right? So we need downstream cooperation from the social media networks to say, look, if you see something that has a watermark or a fingerprint that tells you it's real or fake, you have to tell us, the consumer. And if they decide, well, we don't want anything to do with that, well, now we still have a problem. So you need lots of people involved. But I have, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic, that a combination of these technologies will start to chip away at this problem. Okay, so let me... Uh push a little bit on this kind of like up from the bottom. Yeah. Uh, the, I'm kind of interpreting that as an up from the bottom approach. It's people who are, are working in the industry saying we need to, we need a protocol here to identify the authenticity of things. If let's say, you know, it's, I'm totally making this up Twitter versus threads and Twitter says, we're going to ignore it, but thread says we're going to use it. Does, and then is that going to, there, there's going to be a market effect there where yeah. presumably people who actually want to read real stuff are going to go to the one that is using the system. Sure. And the ones who just want to complain about everything or, or be entertained are going to go to the fake one. 100% true. And this is where the government steps in, right? And the government can say, we're going to put regulatory pressure, right? We have a mechanism. And here's how I think about it. I don't think, obviously, we want the government in the business of telling you what you can and can't say online. Of course not. But they can say that if somebody has created a nutrition label, you have to respect the label. In fact, that sounds awfully familiar. When I go to the grocery store, every single piece of food has a nutrition label on it. And I'm allowed to eat junk food, but I have to know that I'm eating junk food, right? And I think the government can get in that business is to say, look, this is a nutrition label for your brain, for information. And I think if the government, they can have it do this with a carrot or a stick. They can say, look, you don't want to respect nutrition labels. You lose Section 230 protection for liability. You do, you get the, you get the shield. 
So I think they're a mechanism for the government. But I 100 percent agree that if you let the market agree without any top down pressure, we're as only as good as the lowest common denominator. Uh, I think I consumed like three times the daily allotment of sugar yesterday, knowing that I was doing that anyway. Anyway, it's, it's, let me No, This is important. They're necessary, but not sufficient. Right. You need to still your doctor is going to tell you this and your your spouse and your partner are going to tell you this. And you're going to get um, a PSA is telling you about dietary um, what's good for you. So I think these are necessary conditions. If we didn't have a label, we really wouldn't know. At least, you know, yeah. that you ingest it. But but there's still more that has to be done. I, I completely agree with that. All right, honey, um, we're we're uh, we're getting close to kind of our allotted time. I do want to ask you about this. is This is maybe just particular for me, and hopefully our audience will play along. You're you're teaching at a pretty good school uh, there in California. You've got some very smart students. Are you seeing a? I'm not talking about disinformation necessarily, but are you seeing AI yeah. being used in a daily basis in the classroom? And what I does can, that look like? I can tell you. Uh, I love this question, by the way, and I'm so glad you asked this to me. So. Uh, last semester, I taught the Introduction to Computer Science class, which has about 1,500 or so students in it um, when I taught it. And, you know, I would, after every class, I'd chat up a couple of students, walk back to my office with them, go get a cup of coffee with them. And I asked them all the same question. Are you guys using ChatGPT? I'm pretty sure it was 100% said yes in some form. Um, I'm sure some of them were writing code with it. I'm sure some were writing essays with it. I'm sure some were um, ingesting content and then summarizing it. Some were using it as search engines. Uh, ChatGPT is here. By the way, did you notice uh, there was a, a couple of press stories recently that for the first time since they launched, ChatGP, the number of ChatGPT users has gone down. Has anybody noticed that it's summer break and the students aren't <laughs> around? Um, I think that's all that it is. <laughs> and when, by the way, it's not just the students. I know faculty are using it. I have a colleague, I won't mention their name, uh, who was using it to help write a proposal uh, for yeah. the National Science Foundation. Um, and so I think it is a very powerful tool. I think there are, I have concerns from a pedagogical side that if students are just going, I mean, by the way, here's my dystopian uh, vision of the future of the higher education. Professor's going to go to ChatGPT and said, please write me a syllabus and a curriculum and notes for a class. Yeah. and homeworks. And I'm going to give that to the students. And then the students are going to ask ChatGPT <laughs> to solve the problems. And then I'm going to give the solutions to ChatGPT to grade it. And we're all going to go home and be pretty <laughs> dumb at the end of the day. We need to think carefully about how we incorporate these tools into higher and primary education. So you can test products to see if there's ChatGPT in them, right? There are, uh, is it I, I'm worried about the accuracy of those, of those tests. And if you're going to accuse a student or a colleague of cheating, those tests had better be damn reliable. I think yeah. the way to do it is not forensically analyze what people create because I think it's not accurate enough. Here's the way I'm starting to think about it is um, I'm old enough to remember back in the day when calculators became ubiquitous. They were in cereal boxes. And what did math teachers do? They said, what? Show me your work. Yeah. That's how we knew you weren't yeah. using a calculator. I can do the same thing with coding. I can make students write their code in a closed ecosystem where I can see every 30 seconds, I take a snapshot of what they're doing and I can see their work. And if all of a sudden their code is instantaneously working, okay, I know. So, so I think there are, there are other mechanisms that we have to be creative about. Um, and I think just simply testing the end product, at least right now, is not accurate enough to start accusing people of cheating. All right, last uh, exit question. Hani, is is artificial intelligence going to take over and make humans all slaves to some uh, giant computer brain? You know what worries me? Um, what worries me is that people like Jeff Hinton are worried. Um, when, when, the, when the people who created this field start panicking, 
I think we should all start asking some hard questions. Um, and so I don't know the answer to that, but I think it is reasonably, it's reasonable to be concerned about the impact of this technology, but I think it's also important to understand that it's this technology on top of social media, on top of ubiquitous computing, on top of mobile computing, on top of the existing information ecosystem, if you want to call it that, that should worry us a little bit. I, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm I tend to be an optimist by nature. I think there's some something very cool here. I think there's something very worrisome here. And I think if the governments don't get their act together, the worst case scenario is more likely than not. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you so much to Dr. Hani Farid for coming on the podcast for our special Summer of AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. Thanks to Brooke Aga Khan and Angela Mangione from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help in producing today's episode. Faultlines is also now on YouTube so you can see our smiling faces. And if you like what you heard and saw, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share with all of your friends wherever you get your podcasts.